Hey, what's going on, CNFers? It's the hashtag CNF Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. No long, goofy intro today. Just getting right into it. Episode 26 features Kevin Robbins, who is the author of Harvey Pennick, The Life and Wisdom of the Man Who Wrote the Book on Golf. So if anyone's played golf, you've probably read Harvey Pennick's Little Red Book. Kevin's book is about Harvey Pennick and subsequently the Little Red Book. So it's a wonderful biography. Go buy it. Um, if you need any other convincing to buy the book, you're just going to have to listen to the podcast. And then afterwards, you'll probably want to go buy the book. So that's it. Let's get on to it. Thank you very much for uh, carving out some time here. I, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's nice to be able to finally uh, speak with you and uh, get to talk to you about your wonderful book eventually. So I just want to first thank you for uh, carving out some time in your afternoon. Yeah, thank you for, thank you for thinking of me, man. It's an honor. Oh, excuse me. I was taking a gulp of water. Um, yeah, exactly. But um, before before we get to the book, I always kind of like to get into some of the origin story, if you will. And um, and I want to first ask you, like, where where did you grow up, and uh, where did you grow up, and sort of what did you want to be when you were a kid? I grew up in a south suburb of Kansas City called Grandview, um, <clears throat> and um, I'm probably a lot different from your other guests in this way in that I really was a pretty directionless kid um, grow, um, growing up in, in Grandview and didn't really know how I would fit into the world as, when I got older. Um, not sure I really gave it a whole lot of thought. You know, I was just like having a good time playing baseball and, uh, you know, I, it's hard to say, Brendan, but um, yeah. I – I eked out of high school somehow, and I went to this little uh, state school about an hour away from Kansas City called Central Missouri State. And when I was there, I met these three these three guys who were juniors. I was a freshman, and they were juniors. Um, and I excuse me, mm-hmm. I talk about this a lot with my classes uh, because I want them to know that to be open to, to meeting influential people when they're in college, these three guys, they kind of saved my life. You know, they were, they had a direction, they had a purpose, they were serious about school. Uh, they didn't fuck around a lot. And when they did, you know, they, they did it when the time was right. And, uh, uh, those guys, they remain my great friends today and they know what they mean to me. And, uh, They just kind of, without trying, they showed me the way. And uh, so I I became serious about school um, and I found a a degree program um, that I was interested in. It was psychology um, and I didn't end up, didn't end up really following through with that as a career, um, but it was a helpful foundation. And I, I later tacked on a journalism degree my fifth year and got a double degree in journalism and psychology and was fortunate that my aunt was the editor of Kansas City Magazine, and she gave me a, a part-time job after college doing the calendar, um, and and then she threw me a small story, and then a medium story, and then a longer story, and then nine months later, I had my first job at a daily newspaper, and and that's the way it, that's the way it happened. Hmm. And you said in in high school, you kind of you felt like you kind of eke, eked it out, kind of lucky to get through. Um, why do why do you think that time was a challenge for you? That well, that's just it. It really wasn't a challenge. Mm. Uh, 
Um, the, like, I know a lot of people, uh, they find meaningful mentors or um, role models in high school, and I didn't. And I'm sure they were there, but, um, you know, they just didn't – we didn't connect. Um I don't know. You know, it's like I was, I, I didn't take life seriously. I, I didn't take school seriously. I, I did. And it, you know, it's like my parents, they're good people and they're both professionals. And I, I know they tried to, to straighten me out, but I just wasn't willing. Um, so I, you know, it's like, I it wasn't a challenge. And then when I got to college and I met these three guys and they did kind of challenge me to be better. And that's what I needed at that time. So how did your paths cross with these three guys who were juniors in college? <laughs> at a fraternity rush party. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it happened. And, um, it, it, another and, and another way that I'm different from a lot in our community is that I, I was a member of, of a fraternity, and I know that a lot of people in our industry they were not, and they were actually they actually have strong opinions against that sort of thing. Um, but I, you know, I will admit that fraternity saved me um, largely because these three guys were in it. Uh, but um, you know, they the the people I met in that group. Um, you know, they gave me something to aspire to. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure we'd be have. I know we wouldn't be having this conversation if I didn't meet those people. Yeah, well, there's something to be said. Like, even if, you know, joining a fraternity of that nature that, um, you know, you were able to get under the wing of some guys who have been there for a couple of years. And even even though it might be an unorthodox way of, say, getting eventually getting to the point where you're at, you had even though they were just a couple years older than you, you did have some sort of guiding influence and North star to help. I don't know. give you that direction that you said you just, it was hard to come by for you the first few years of your life. I just, you know, I think we all, we all meet people in our lives. Um, and often it's, it's accidental. Um, and, um, it just took me that long to, to meet those people. And so what would you say was the moment that, that, you really wanted to become a writer and, and pursue some nonfiction storytelling? Well, it, it would have been my, my second full-time job from, uh, from, I, I worked at this little daily newspaper in suburban Kansas city called the Olathe daily news. I was there for about a year and then I went to Iowa, um, to the, the newspaper in Burlington, Iowa. I started the first week of the year, uh, 1990. And, um, I was my first, it was my first, uh, of course, job away from home. The first time I had made a, what seemed like a permanent move away from Kansas city. Uh, and, and there I, I started reading the Des Moines register and in the nineties, the Des Moines register was one of the great American daily newspapers. It had uh, same day delivery to all 99 counties in Iowa uh, had a great staff and a storyteller by the name of Ken Fusen. Um, and, and just <clears throat> reading, uh, Ken, uh, in the Sunday register, um, exposed me to what newspaper storytelling could be. And, uh, he, I remember he was the first, uh, like the first writer I wanted to be, you know, I, mm -hmm. I would read stories and I, I and I would want to do that level of work. Um, and I even called him. Um, in 1990, I called him, he answered his phone. I was fortunate. 
uh, and fortunate also that he's a nice guy willing to talk to, uh, you know, this, this, this kid in, in Burlington, Iowa. And, um, so I formed this friendship with him too. And, uh, he later agreed to like read my stories and give me critiques and, and that kind of thing. But, uh, I think even though I had been working as a kind of a writer for a couple of years, it wasn't until 1990 that I realized that I really, really wanted to do that. And I was, I was ready and willing to put in the work. Yeah. It's always interesting to, to hear, to hear people and, and writers, uh, so explain or um, sort of illustrate that one person or that one writer who sort of unlocked the genre for them. That's a, that must be like that's a that's a great anecdote that you just shared. And I imagine as a teacher now, you're 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 putting work in front of your students that might be opening that door to them. I, it's um it's always fun to hear that, and I wonder like do you see that in your students too? Like you hand them work by maybe a Wright Thompson or Seth Wickersham or, or any of these contemporary great sports writers. Um, and I'm sure other uh, writers from the other genres too. Um, but I, I wonder what that's like seeing, seeing that light bulb go on in uh, in your students, the way it did for you when you, uh, when you spoke with Ken or read Ken's work. Yeah. That, and that, that is what happens and it's very intentional. You know, I'm pretty certain that there are only really two ways to, to get really good at what we do. And one of them is to read a lot. And one of them is to write a lot. So we do read a lot. I flood these, these classes with, uh, with stuff going back to, you know, I make them read the four horsemen and I make them read the, uh, death of a racehorse. Mm. I mean, those are, those are very, very old. And we read a lot of stuff from Esquire in the 1960s. And, uh, um, early New Yorker stuff, and you're right, Seth Wickersham, Wright Thompson, a lot of guys at ESPN, Sports Illustrated, at uh, uh, the Ringer, what used to be Grantland. Um, I, you know, every week we're reading, we're reading that kind of stuff because that's the way, that's the way you learn. Right, and um, and uh, you mentioned you mentioned Ken Fuse, and um, who were some of the other writers that as you're as as the light bulb was turning on for you that also unlocked the, the potential for you to do more longer narrative work, like some of the, maybe some of the more pioneers of the genre or, um, or just a particular piece that caught you. And you're like, if that's one I reread all the time, that's like kind of a, a guiding principle and a guiding piece for the work that I choose to do. I remember when I was in Iowa, I was there from 90 to 94. Um, <clears throat> reading a guy named Spencer Hines at the Portland Oregonian. Um, I, I remember uh, reading some early Tom Hallman work at the, at the Portland Oregonian. Um, I started buying writing books. Uh, so um, I remember there was a book called On Writing Well, The Writer's Art by James Kilpatrick, a book called When Words Collide. These were kind of the manuals, the how-to manuals. Um, but I was very much stuck in newspaper writing at the time and I wasn't really, um, reading as much magazine work or short stories or fiction or nonfiction, uh, like I do now. Um, so it was all like newspaper people. And then in 1994, I went to grad, I went back to school, I went to graduate school at Ohio university and, um, and that's when I, I took a couple of, um, um, creative writing workshops in the English department <laughs> under a guy named David Lazar. 
and uh, it was crazy. It was uh, they were they were night classes, and it, we worked in the personal essay form. Um, and so it was me, you know, this this thirty year old uh, former newspaper reporter, and me and seven or eight English PhDs in this room talking about personal essays, both personal essays that we read, and that's where I was exposed to people like Joan Didion. Mm. Um, and, and also our own, it was a workshop. So we wrote our own personal essays and had to read them aloud and then, you know, listen to the critiques from our peers. And, uh, boy, that was, uh, that was a, uh, a really like clarifying experience for me to be in that room of these really like capable, stout scholars, um, and, you know, having to like swallow hard and take a deep breath and read my work in front of them. <laughs> uh, I, I like that course. I took it. I took it. I like it so much. I took it twice, uh, just because I found it to be, you know, just liberating. So, um, so anyway, that's where I, I started reading more, uh, magazine type nonfiction and, uh, personal essay. And then my job, my, from Ohio, I went to the Memphis Commercial Appeal, and by that time, I was like a you know a, a standard bearer for the nonfiction form, and uh, I you know was helping to organize little writers groups at the Commercial Appeal, and I was by that time I was I had a clip file, and I was I was uh, cutting out and storing stories that I loved at the time. I was following the prize winners, and just uh, was I got I got involved with that listserv called Writer L that John Franklin hosted. Uh, I was all in at that point. So, what did the other English PhDs make of you, this newspaper person coming into that class? They were really cool, um, and I, I admired them for their restraint because I feel like they mm -hmm. really carved me up. Um, but they, they recognized, you know, my form, which was the journalistic, uh, sort of detached third person, uh, sort of balanced voice. And so they really liked encourage, they encouraged me to work within that realm and stretch a little bit, but they didn't expect me to be them. And I really respected them for that. They were very, their critiques were, were very positive um, and, and very impersonal and they helped me out a lot. So how would you, um, characterize how your writing was before that program, before you took the class twice and then how it elevated once you sort of graduated from those classes? Wow. That's a really good question. It's one I've never really confronted. Um, I think, okay. I think what maybe it did was it uh, it encouraged me, emboldened me to take sort of calculated risks um, to use, you know, like scenic detail at a, at a higher level. Uh, these are my hopes. These aren't facts. These are this is what I hope happened. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, but, you know, I had to be careful because I knew I was I knew I wasn't going to try to write the personal essay as a vocation. I knew I was my destiny was to go back in the newspapers. So I really had to recognize the difference between, um, you know, writing uh, the, the first person point of view versus the omniscient narrator of the third person kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but just like 
listening to listening to read, them read their work too, and it was almost like performance art. And I guess maybe I also developed more of an ear for the lyricism of language too. Right. Uh, again, that's that's my hope, not fact. Yeah. But, <laughs> those two, you know, just like the the exposure to um, these different voices, I think really really helped me both decide who I wanted to be and who I couldn't be. Yeah, it's uh, that's uh, that's interesting how you how you uh, almost use it more as an act. It became more of an I don't know, just a, a a way to like strengthen your capacity as a writer, though you wouldn't necessarily adopt everything. That you mm-hmm. had in that class. Um, just as a, as an aside, like sometimes I, I write some short fiction on the side that I I really don't have any intent on submitting or anything. But it's it's that practice of of getting a little more cinematic. I can make stuff up, but then when I go to the nonfiction and go back and put the reporter hat on, it's like okay, now I kind of know what questions to ask my ask people, what details to pay attention to to uh to verify those facts but it's like the the fiction dabbling kind of um it it opens up what questions i should be asking the people that i report on you know yeah, you know what you're looking for yeah yeah and so what uh so how did you get to harvey panic well <clears throat> let's see the shortest version of that is in 1992, the year the Little Red Book was published, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother in Kansas City, gave me the Little Red Book for Christmas, and uh, I I, I uh, had always loved golf and I loved playing it, um, and I didn't really know exactly what I liked about golf until I read that book, and hmm. I realized like Harvey helped me understand all of these little beauties about the game that. I had always experienced, but couldn't really put words in or, or into or, or define very well. Uh, and, you know, so in other words, that book really became um, an important uh, thing for me, and it uh, it made me a better player. It made me a better. Um, it made me understand the game more and what, what I liked about the game. So Harvey's sort of been with me since 1992, and then I, when I came to Austin in 2000. Um, you know, we have 300 days of sun down here a year and so I was able to play a whole lot of golf. And we, when we got, got here, we didn't have kids yet. So, um, I was able to get out and really, really play. And I became sort of, uh, I became better and sort of competitive and, and entered qualifiers and was playing a little bit on the state scene and that kind of thing, meeting golf people. And then I became a golf writer. Uh, and I met Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite who live here in Austin. I met Harvey's mm. family, um, everything. So in uh, these things that were happening, they were all sort of pushing me towards this, um, eventuality. And, um, when I became a teacher at UT, part of the expectation of faculty is that we write and we either write for the, tr- we either write trade books or, or, uh, scholarly books. And I didn't really want to write scholarly books, nor was I qualified so I'm lying, lying in bed one night in the summer of 2012 before my first fall semester, and I'm trying to think of my first book. And um, I thought, wow, that, that 1995 Masters that Ben Crenshaw won the week after Harvey died, that could be a really good book. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it sounded like the kind of book I would want to read. I was reading a lot of golf, by the way, by this time. You know, I was re- I, Mark Frost, John Feinstein, anybody who wrote golf, I was reading them. Um, 
So uh, the next day I called Ben's uh, business agent, who I knew from my days as a newspaper reporter, and I, I, I told him my idea, and he said, well, you know, to be honest, we're doing our own book right now that has to do with the 95 Masters, and uh, we just don't really have the time to, to devote to this. So um, I was disappointed, but um, but ready to ready to find another idea. I'm lying in bed literally the next night, two nights consecutively here is how this all happened. And, uh, I just realized like I was missing the bigger picture. Um, I was, I was looking at the 95 masters as a story and it was a story, but it was just part of the bigger story. And Mm -hmm. why, why did the 95 masters, why does it remain one of the most memorable championships in the history of golf? And it's, it's not because Ben won, you know, he was 43 and not playing his best golf, but he's still a really great player. It was the fact that he won that tournament a week after Harvey died. So, um, so I thought that's it. I, I, that's it. Harvey's biography. I had never written a biography. I'd read a few, but you know, it's like, this is my, this is my possibility here. And so, um, the next day I called the guy who later became my agent and, um, off we went and that's how it happened. That's, uh, that's incredible that, that the fact that you had read so much golf, how surprised were you that there hadn't been anything extensive written on Harvey to this extent? Yeah, yeah, I was. We, we all were. Um, like I, when I was lying in bed that second night um, and Harvey's the, the, the Harvey book occurred to me, I thought, OK, how have I missed his biography? You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and then the next day when I when I talked to Jim Hornfisher, my agent, uh, and he basically verified that it had never been done. Yeah. It was like, we were wondering ourselves, like, how did this happen? Why did this never happen? Um, so we were lucky. So, all right. Now you realize that there hadn't been anything written on them to this extent. And now you've got to be all kinds of excited and like, just jacked up wait, like trying to, to get this, uh, to get the ball rolling. So what were your first steps then when you realized there wasn't anything written and then you were going to be the person to write this book? So the first step was to call Harvey's son, Tinsley, who lives here in Austin. Um, and I, I felt like I needed to get his uh, blessing for the project. Mm-hmm. And I had known Tinsley. Uh, we were acquaintances. I had written about his father before for the newspaper. And um, Tinsley agreed. That was important. And so did his sister, Catherine. So I had... The, the two descendants of Harvey who, who remain to this day, I had their, their pledge of cooperation. Um, and then it was a matter of calling um, Harvey's contemporaries. You know, when Harvey died in 1995, he was um, 90 years old. And I knew that time was not on my side if I wanted to get actual live interviews done. So the early stages of the book research really amounted to personal interviews with people who were still living, who could give me some sort of recollection that was new, you know, a lot, there's been a lot written in magazines and even books about Harvey and about, um, his life. So I knew that I knew that I would have a lot of, uh, archival, material, archive material available to me, but I also wanted to get things that had never been 
revealed, even little, small little details, anything to give it some freshness. So the early stages of the, the research involved um, talking to people who could give me um, personal memory. And, um, and then once I had that pretty much taken care of, then I, uh, I devoted a lot of time to this research facility on campus that had Harvey's collection, his papers, uh, archived there. Um, and then down the road at Texas State University in San Marcos, about 20 miles south of Austin, that's where Bud Shrake's papers were located. So the, the book was um, very convenient because everything I needed was in Central Texas, most of it in Austin. Yeah, I, I, I know when I get a really sort of jazzed up about a project, sometimes I get like real, like so excited about it that it's, it's hard to uh, slow down and like yeah. just take a few beats and uh, just just kind of take take the time, take a little bit of time. And I, I wonder if you at any time, just because you there was the looking through Shrake's papers and Harvey's papers, and then trying to hustle to get these interviews done with these uh, some of Harvey's older contemporaries. Uh, what was the how did what was your process and how did you work through that to ensure that you were you were just, you were being rigorous, uh, but getting all the information you had in a timely manner, but also doing it in such a way where you weren't going too fast and missing things because of your of the excitement of the project itself. Yeah, that's hard. Um, so, but I, you know, I had so I had some um, I had some limitations that I had to confront. One was I had a full time job. Yeah. The other was by this time in in 2012, when I'm getting started, I have, uh, I have a daughter who's 10 and I have a son who's seven. So, um, uh, I have, I have these other obligations. So I had to be really good at compartmentalizing and scheduling myself. Mm. And, um, so I really, it was like almost impossible to go too fast because my, my life circumstances wouldn't let me. Um, but also what helped was, Go, when I went back to grad school, you know, I had to, I had to learn to become a re- researcher. And so, um, and being, being a newspaper reporter for as long as I've been, uh, those two things helped me, uh, do, I think a sound job of researching Harvey's life. The, 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 the training of being a journalist, um, of telling, of trying to tell the whole story. And, uh, those two years that I spent in graduate school where I did a lot of academic research and wrote, you know, scholarly paper papers for publication. Um, so I felt like I, I was, I was trained well and that I knew how to pace myself, uh, and that, and that, and that I knew what I was looking for. Um, and then these outside influences of having a family and having a job, those things told me when I could go do my work. So it really was a matter of just giving up a lot of what used to be free time and devoting that to meeting my deadline. Now, having never uh, taking, taken on the project of a pure biography, uh, what, what challenges did you, challenges did you face as you, were, as you were looking to undertake something that you hadn't done before? Well, there was one central challenge, but also um, there was also a a quality 
of the biography form that helped that, that simplified everything. And that was, I knew when the, I knew when the story started and I knew when it ended. Um, so a lot of choices were taken away from me and I'm grateful for that, that I didn't have to make story choices because basically the book begins when he, when he's born and it ends shortly after his death. Uh, but there was a, there was a significant challenge that it remains the biggest weakness of the book. And that is that Harvey lived kind of a complication free life. Like his life was free of struggle. And so there's not a lot of good story tension or dramatic tension Mm -hmm. in his life. Um, and I mean, that's just, those were the, that was the situation I was faced with. I couldn't make anything up. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about that. Um, so, you know, the, the first half of the book, it kind of sort of plods along. Uh, I like to think that it picks up a little bit of pace when, um, when he starts to write the little red book with Bud Shrake and then Tom Kite wins the U S open and then along comes another book and then Ben wins the masters, you know? Um, but, uh, it's just something that I had to, I had to face and accept because Harvey lived this kind of undramatic life. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. That must've been, uh, yeah, because in order to have, you know, a good story, you, you need conflict or I, I believe uh, what John Franklin would call a complication. And like you said, you know, he Harvey led a pretty complication free life. But but I, I think the book, I loved it beginning to end. And, and I think it really it gained a, a certain degree of elevation when you you go into Bud Shrake's life a bit. And then that intersection of Shrake, who is just 180 degrees different in a lot of ways than Harvey. And then the two, the unlikely partnership in, in some ways that, uh, that creates this iconic little red book. So, uh, what was it like, uh, researching that component of it to give another side of the coin, which was in essence, this book is also a biography of the little red book. So you get Shrake in there too. So what was that experience like doing that kind of research, uh, to the yin to Harvey's yang in this case? Yeah, it was, I, I, I enjoyed it very much um, because it did provide a different kind of texture to the story. It was a story of these kind of unlikely collaborators, Bud and Harvey lived differently. Um, Bud kept, Bud, would, Bud was, uh, he kept everything in, uh, involving his personal and, and life and literature. So, his collection is far more vast and uh, a lot greater than, than Harvey's. Um, I had to be careful not to cede too much of the story to Bud. Uh, in fact, in my first version, I might have done that because we, we uh, compressed his, his uh, presence in the book quite a bit. Um, but it, it did give that – I'd like to think it gave the story a little more of a sense of adventure – uh, that it broadened um, the scope of, of the story because most of it, let's be honest, it takes place on some golf course in Austin. Uh, but Bud, meanwhile, is you know this globe-trotting, larger-than-life kind of man about the world. Um, so it gave it gave the I hope it gave the story a little more of a cosmopolitan feel. But yeah, I, I welcome Bud's presence in the book. Um, I think it added a great deal. 
So what did you enjoy most about the process of taking this book from research to its final version? Well, <clears throat> you mean besides the, the trip to the Masters that I took in 2013? <laughs> 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 That's the trip I took for the book was I did go to the Masters. That's great. It was fun. Um, you know, it was a grind, but I look back at the, at the five month, the first five months of 2014, I believe it was. Uh, yeah. Uh, but we're basically starting January 1st of 2014 and ending three days before my due date in, in May, I made myself write a thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, uh, that, uh, my days took on a kind of a reliability and, uh, I, um, I had a set time when I would sit down to write and, uh, it did provided a sense of routine, but in the best sense of the word, like, um, I really enjoyed hitting that stride and maintaining that stride. It was a grind and there are a lot of things I had to say no to. And I, I know that I, I, I missed, certain things with certain events and activities with my family that I very much would have enjoyed doing. But I felt like I had, um, I felt like I had a task that needed to be done. There was no room for compromise. And, uh, that gave me a sense of purpose. Like I'd never felt. So it's, uh, any creative endeavor, it, like there is an inherent degree of like selfishness that's involved. And I wonder, like you having having a family and having students uh, and those kind of obligations, like how uh, how did you for the per time of the writing of the book, how did you reconcile that that need to be selfish to finish the book with your extraneous uh, with your other you know personal activities and your responsibilities as a as a husband, a father, and a teacher? Well, that's a really really interesting question. Because I know I gotta admit I never really felt um, any any sense of selfishness. In, in fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, I wanted to, as I explained it, I wanted to make good on my commitment. Um, I mean, so I've told you a little bit about myself, and you probably have the the sense that when I was young, I never I never saw myself writing a book. I never saw myself amounting to much. Mm. And yet here I was all these years later and I had a contract with a real publisher to do a, a, a story about someone really meaningful. I felt like I was contributing to, um, the story of American golf. And, um, and I was going to, I was going to meet that obligation. I was going to make that deadline and um, and do what I said I was going to do and prove prove it in a small way to myself, but um, in a bigger way, prove it to, you know, the world that I could actually do something worthwhile uh, and do it on time. So um, I didn't feel selfish as much as I felt selfless, if that uh, yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it's like you you sh – um added some an extra degree of sort of like civic duty to golf and to that family to uh, that's that's interesting that's a really that's an interesting approach that I hadn't really heard before and the did that 
it, clearly it helped you meet your deadlines um and uh and made you adhere to that schedule uh, but also did that that pressure you put on yourself was did that ever become a hindrance or was it always a gentle crack of the whip that kept you focused on your north star of finishing the book and doing it well and meeting your deadlines well it was it was an intractable commitment to writing a thousand words a day uh, I sort of tricked myself late in the fall of 2013. I tricked myself into thinking that I had to write a thousand words a day or I wasn't going to meet my deadline. Mathematically, that wasn't true. Um, but that was the, that was the, 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 the little trick I had to play on myself to sort of engage in that commitment. And, um, and so that, you know, that's, what I did was I wrote those thousand words, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but I literally kept track on a ledger of the number of words I had written that day and then the sum of the words so that I could actually see this thing growing. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it was, it was I don't know if it, a crack of the whip is I, uh, a nudge, uh, a push, uh, or just like almost like uh, – reaching the next rung on the ladder every day, I guess. Yeah. Is about yeah. So what did your, you've alluded to it already with a thousand words a day. And so, um, but what was your regimen and your schedule like? So like what say, what was maybe like the first like 60 to 90 minutes of your day looking like as you were sort of priming the pump to get into this and make sure you hit your, hit your rungs. So it, de- it depended on the day. Uh, my classes were on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So those were the days when I would uh, write at night. <clears throat> and I'll get into a little detail about that in a minute. Sure. Uh, weekends and Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would write in the morning. So um, so on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I would get up, get the help my wife get the kids out the door to school. I would go do my classes. I would come home, um, help get uh, the kids uh home from school, get their homework finished, uh, help with dinner. And then, uh, after dinner and we cleaned up the kitchen, the kids would go to bed and then I would go to the, to the YMCA. And I'm not a big, like fitness guy, as you could probably tell, but uh, (laughs) I did, I did have this, uh, very firm conviction that, um, that I was more productive if I would go like have a good sweat. So I would go to the gym until 10 o'clock. I'd come home, I'd take a shower, and then I'd go upstairs. And by about 1045, uh, I was starting to write my thousand words. And I'd usually be all done by one o'clock in the morning and, and, and to bed. Now, the good thing about this hour at the gym or hour and a half in the gym, like I'm on the treadmill or I'm on the elliptical or whatever, and uh, I'm thinking about what part of the story I'm about to tell. And so by the time I get home, I mean, I, I was so charged up that I would have to stop myself and make myself go take a shower and get cleaned up. Mm. I went upstairs. Otherwise I knew that I'd just lose time and it'd be one o'clock in the morning. And then I'd be, you know, like this, this sweaty mess still needing to take a shower. So that's, that's what I would do on, on those evenings. I taught on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'd get up, I'd help get the kids to school, and then I would write until about 11. Um, and I can't, I can't spend, like, I'm not John McPhee, and I'm not Stephen King. I can't spend eight hours a day writing. I just, I max out, and I know that, that three or four hours is, is all I can do before I need a good long break. 
Um, and sometimes I can't even return to it that evening, like on the Tuesdays and Thursdays. I, I, I wouldn't go back to it. As long as I was hitting a thousand words, and because I was a newspaper reporter for so long, if I have my material in front of me, I can knock out a thousand words easily in 90 minutes to two hours. And then I can go back and spend some time with it and make it a little better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then on weekends, uh, you know, we had this, my wife, gosh, she, she helped me out in so many ways, but she would get, she and the kids would get out of the house every Saturday or Sunday for like four hours. And that would give me that big window to complete. And oftentimes I remember on Saturdays or Sundays, I would write 1200 or 1500 because they'd be gone in the middle of the day. And so that allowed like on in the evenings that allowed me and my wife to watch a movie and have like that kind of real and actual husband and wife uh, time together. And then it allowed one day on the weekends for me and the kids to go to the zoo or go to a water park or, you know, do what I play tennis. We did that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it just it was a it was kind of a breathless pace for those four months. But um uh, but you know, I, I, I feel like I could do it again. And I, I feel like, uh, if, if you trick yourself like I did into thinking that if you fall behind, you're going to miss your deadline and the contract's going to get torn up and you got to pay back your advance mm-hmm. yourself into thinking that it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what somebody can do. And, uh, you know, given that you spent like, a, lo- a lot of time researching, uh, I, I remember hearing Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, when she was through with Team of Rivals, uh, being asked, like she she really came to a, a place where she almost felt like she was friends with Abraham Lincoln, and like when she was done, she like really missed him, like doing all that research. And I wonder if you felt the a similar sense with Harvey, having spent so much time researching with this person that you had always known about, but then you really got to through your research know on such a deeper level i wonder like when the project was done if you had that that certain sense of like oh we're like i kind of miss my friend yeah i i think i did a little bit and um but but more than that because this was my first effort at writing a book and i had never written biography of course the i had this sense of um of worry and concern that I had somehow miscalculated his life or despite all of the research that I had done, you know, at some point I had to say, okay, I'm done researching. Now it's time to start organizing this thing and writing it. I was worried that there was something I missed or that I, uh, you know, I miscalculated his, uh, his place in golf history that I underestimated something, or maybe I overestimated something, but there were the things were out of balance. Like it really bothered, it really concerned me that I didn't tell his story the way that it should be told, you know, according to whom I don't know, but I was concerned about the, uh, giving it, giving the manuscript to his children, Catherine and Tinsley, what would they think? I was concerned about, what Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite would think about the manuscript and all the amazing women, Kathy Whitworth, uh, Betsy Rawls, who were going to read it too. Uh, I was, um, so I was, I was not so much missing Harvey as I was worried that, that somehow I hadn't risen to the task of writing his story the way it should have been done. 
So how did, once you felt like you were at a point with your research that it was time to start writing, how did you go about organizing it so it was it was manageable and that you weren't missing missing things that you may have researched but it just got lost in a pile of papers or a pile of books like because it is a you got for something of the of this magnitude it, it's got to be very you got to be really rigorous and meticulous with your research so um, i wonder how you went about organizing that and um and then laying it out in such a way that you could hit your thousand word benchmarks once you started getting into the writing so I, um, because the story began in 1905 and ended basically in 1995, I organized everything by decade. And so I, I went to, um, you know, like, uh, office max and I bought these archival boxes, one for each decade. And then I had folders, uh, manila folders that were tabbed with specific either events or dates. Um, and, by the time I was ready to start writing the book, I, I had these boxes, each one representing a decade and inside folders organized by event or date. Um, I knew the big events, you know, I knew that, uh, 1992 was big because that's the year the little red came out. It's also the year that Tom kite won the U S open. I knew 95 was big, uh, for obvious reasons. 93 was big because the little green book had come out. Um, Everything else sort of faded a little bit. Uh, most of why we remember Harvey uh, happened in the 90s. So, um, so that's how I organized it by by date. And each decade, each decade was in a box. And I started, I started it with the first box, and um, and I ended it with the last one with some cheating. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote the first line of the book in October of 2014. Uh, wait a minute, 20, no, 2013. Um, and I, I pretty much started dead in the middle of the story at an event that happened in 1950. But, um, I had just returned from a reporting trip to Midland, Texas, where this 1950 event happened. So it was top of mind. It was like the freshest material. It was the stuff that I was thinking about the most, so I wanted to go ahead and get that story written. I also wanted to see um, the difference in in heft, in length, in weight, in reporting depth, the difference between a newspaper story and a book story. Um, and by book story, I mean any little story that's in the book. So I wanted to see what I was going to get out of this event that happened in 1950. And it turned out to be like 2,500 words, which is an enormously long newspaper story. But it was just a fraction of what was going to be in the book. And so I remember in October of 2013 finishing that Midland story and thinking, wow, um, this is going to take time. But but I firmly believed at that point that I was capable of finishing the book. Like I could tell these these what seemed to be small stories, I could tell them with a lot more space and a lot more depth and get more words out of them. Mm. And, and uh, how would you say your your teaching helps your writing? Well, it 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 makes me the teaching teaching a story like this week. It's our second. It's our third full week of, of classes at UT, and it's the week when in my long form class we've read um, Frank Sinatra has cold, and mm -hmm. we talked about it. You know, so that's a fifty year old story, and. Um, 
students need to be kind of seduced into liking that. You know, it's, it's terribly long. It's about a guy they've heard of, but they don't know. None of the imagery in the, in the story really connects with them. The, the, the writing in it is a little more languid and a little denser than what they're used to. So I really have to sort of open that story up so that these 20 year olds can see the beauty in it. So it makes me analyze and think about these great works of journalism in a much higher degree than I've ever had to. You know, when I was in Iowa in 1990 reading Ken Fusen, I liked his work, but I didn't really think about why. And now um, when I'm trying to teach the lessons of Frank Sinatra has a cold, I, you know, I better very well know what I'm talking about um, or, you know, nobody's going to, nobody's going to trust what I have to say about it. So, um, the te- teaching has helped me unpack journalism to uh, identify and isolate those qualities that are present in every good piece of journalism. Um, and it's just sort of elevates my conversation about it. So what's it, there's, there's a great anecdote in, uh, the little red, the little red book where, um, I think, uh, Harvey's asked like why he didn't, turn pro or what made him go to, to become a teacher and not a pro. And it was cause he heard Sam Sneed on the driving range, just hitting balls. And the sound that Sneed was making on contact basically shook, like, shook Harvey in such a way. He's like, well, I'm never going to be able to hit a ball that hard. It wouldn't make that sound. So, you know, what? I, I, I'm not cut out to be a pro. And it was just like, like an instant, just like that. And uh, I love that anecdote because it's, it's applicable to so many things. I think with like teachers and writers and players and coaches, you know, what drives people towards instruction versus the actual doing of it. And uh, I wonder if, if you've seen, not that anything that shakes you away from being a writer, but I wonder if you've seen some talent in your classes where you look at them and it's just, they pick up the guitar and they're Jimi Hendrix without even trying. I wonder if like, what if you've experienced that and what's that like seeing that in somebody so young and precocious you know from a from a remove of a few of a few decades of this practice like what that's like seeing that in a young person well so here's the thing about writing that's different from you know say piano or violin or uh, any number of other things like there are very few uh what is the word prodigies Mm -hmm. in in writing um, because as we discussed earlier, you know, you really have to, you have to read a lot and write a lot to become good at this. Um, so I see, I see like the, I see little hints of and little reflections of genius in some of my kids, but also I teach, you know, I'm in the journalism school, I'm not in the English department. So they need to be taught the, the rigors of, fact-checking and of um, reporting, exhaustive reporting. And that's what that's what makes good journalism is the fact that you reveal um, and, of course, how you render it. But more so, you've got to have good material before you have a good story. Um, so I see little little signs that that certain certain of these people are going to be really, really good once they learn how to get and organize their material. But at this, at this stage in their lives, they have no appreciation for how much reporting goes into even like an 800 word story. They just don't, they think they can get by with writing it, Yeah. but have the material to support the writing. So, um, that's, that's the difference the, the in, in your analogy that we're talking about. Yeah. 
And uh, I wonder what what book or books that you often revisit, uh, say yourself as a writer, and and maybe there's some overlap between the books you assign your students, um, but I wonder what you love to revisit to sharpen your own saw as you go to the blank page and do your research and reporting. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, uh, I read the writing, the writing life, um, by Annie Dillard quite a bit. Um, I read on writing by Stephen King. Um, uh, in, in terms of just good, like nonfiction that, uh, that, uh, I really connected with, uh, there's a book called dispatches by Michael Herr. Um, the great, classic story about Bill Bradley, A Sense of Where You Are by John McPhee, um, uh, The Things They Carried by, by Timothy O'Brien um, is, uh, you know, it's just, that's something I could, I could read like every other month and never, never grow tired of it. And I learn something new from it every time I look at it. Um, and then one that I just recently read again for, I think the third time in my life, Young Men in Fire by Norman McLean which is the story of the smoke jumpers in uh, Montana who parachuted into the man Gulch fire in 1949 and just got overrun. And it's a, it's a great story about science. It's a great story about hubris and about humanity. And, uh, um, it's, it's the setting, uh, in these, in the Rocky mountains of, of Montana is just really rugged and kind of exotic. And, uh, uh, so that's a book that I, that I read a lot too. Mm. And uh, are these types of uh, things that seem to you seem to find new new gems in them every time you come to them? They're all yeah, I, but but they're also very just um, what's the anchoring or grounding. Like uh, you know, without exception, those books that I mentioned, they're they seem to not really be written, um, and that's what I admire. I think that's the hardest hardest thing to teach for sure. And one of the hardest things to achieve is that quality of having something sound not written. Um, I have, uh, this little aphorism taped to my desk at, at the university. I don't remember who said it, maybe Elmore Leonard or Pete Hamill or somebody, but it says, uh, if it sounds like writing, I tear it up and start over. <laughs> um, these, these books, even the the writing life and uh, on writing by Stephen King, they just don't sound written. They just sound, they're, they're just so authentic and organic and natural. And I think that's um, a really good, uh, it's a really good bar to set. Yeah. And the more and more you read and write and learn about the stuff, you realize just the, the impossible amount of rigor and hard work went into rendering that prose down to something that is, so readable that it's it just seems like it's an extension of the reader's mind yeah it just flows in that way yeah yeah agreed yeah and i wonder when you were when you were just starting out like what being a successful writer looked like and then maybe like how that has changed as your career progressed well i i don't even know that i imagined what a successful writer looked like when i was young um again i think that goes back to this like lack of sense of uh direction or sense of self that i that i suffered from um <laughs> but i do know that when i started reading confucian and and then the many many others who came after him in the 90s um you know, my images of a successful writer was somebody who could stop, like just like stop time, um, 
when somebody's reading a story, uh, it's just suspend all sense of, of time and space, I guess. Uh, um, it seemed very unattainable for me and I never, I never had any illusions that I would be able to do work at that level and I never have. And that's just, you know, that's okay. I mean, it's, that's, uh, we all have our limits and, and I think I've, you know, probably bumped up against mine a few times. I'll never be a Ken Fusen or an Ann Hall, but, uh, but that's good. You know, like we can't have too many of those people. Otherwise that would get kind of stale. Um, so, um, now today, you know, my sense of a successful writer, I mean, I look back and it's all I've done and it's probably all I'm ever going to do. And in that way, I've kind of beaten the odds, right? A lot of us who are in this business, um, we've been forced out. A lot of really talented people can't make a go of this anymore because it's just too hard. And yet here I am, I'm still doing it. And so that to me is a a level of success. Uh, I know, you know, I never thought I was going to win a Pulitzer Prize. I'm never going to win a National Book Award. Um, But as as long as I can continue being productive and uh, as long as these students I teach think I have something of value to share with them, then um, I think that's success. I'm perfectly I'm thrilled to have that level of success. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a, that's a perfect place to, to end on. Um, let me ask you just one more thing. Um, where can people find you online if they want to get more well-versed in your work and, uh, and stay abreast of what you're doing? No. Well, thanks for asking me because I just, I have a new website. Oh, good. Uh, good. That I, that I built with a friend. Um, so my website address is by kevinrobbins.com, all one word, B Y K E V I N R O B B I N S.com. And, uh, it's mostly about the Harvey book, but I do have a page in on my website that has some, uh, previously published work of mine. So that would be a good place to go. Fantastic. Well, Kevin, this was a, a real pleasure and an honor to get to speak to you about your wonderful book. And um, I really uh, thank you for stopping by the podcast. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk again down the road at some point.